Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. Elon Musk is having a bad morning. This comes after video emerges of him taking a puff of a marijuana-laced cigar on a comedy podcast that he was on. That's not all, though. Also, two senior executives both stepping down, including the uh, head of HR, as well as the chief accounting officer. Not great. Shares down more than 6%. They've been down almost 10% or more than 10% at one point. Let's uh, bring in Gordon Johnson, managing director and uh, alternative energy metals mining and equipment analyst at Vertical Group in New York. Gordon, is this the end or is this just sort of another chapter in the ongoing saga of a very non-traditional chief executive officer? Yeah, I mean, we don't know if it's the end, um, but, you know, we have uh, a very uh, draconian view on Tesla's outlook from a fundamental perspective. Uh, but we think lately it's more important to a lot of the investors um, and the stock, the perception of Elon Musk. And what's interesting is the chief accounting officer who we know left uh, is leaving the company. They actually found this out um, on the 4th. Um, so you, that was released in the AK. So when Elon Musk went on the podcast yesterday, he knew um, that his chief accounting officer was leaving, um, uh, and uh, you know decided to, 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 as you as you know, to take a puff. Um, uh, so I think that um, you know as his credibility comes under more scrutiny, we think that's actually more important. We think it's wrong, but nonetheless, we think that's actually more important um, uh, to the stock near term. Gordon Johnson, is it possible to imagine Tesla without Elon Musk? Uh, yes, I think it's possible. But I think if Elon Musk leaves, I think a lot of the enthusiasm comes out of the stock. I mean, think about this, Tim. You, you know this well. You've seen this, uh, you know, in your years of uh, you know coverage. I mean, uh, the chief accounting officer was there in less than one month. He's seen the books. He's seen things we haven't seen. Look, we highlighted on your show, Pim, that we questioned Tesla's accounting, and, and specifically, uh, if you look 2016 to 2017, and their services and other segment, uh, the revenue was essentially fat, flat, but the cost of goods sold um, in that segment was up $266 million in 2017, up only $66 million in 2016. The point is, we believe Tesla may be shifting uh, cost of goods sold out of their automotive uh, uh, segment into the uh, services and other segments. Segment, thus artificially boosting their auto automotive margins. But this guy has seen stuff we haven't seen, right? right? There's stuff that's not disclosed, and he leaves less than a month with a $10 million grant package on the table that he walked away from. Yeah. So the question well, is, what did he see? Well, and to be clear, he did point out that this was not because of some major accounting problem. Uh, that he was leaving. So he was specific about that. But you do raise a good point, which is he did see a lot of things that we have not seen and he chose to leave. Right now we're looking at shares that are about $262. Uh, where do you think they ought to be given this backdrop? 
Our, our, our price target at the end of 20, 2019 is 88 dollars, and we think that's where the shares are headed. Keep in mind, Elon Musk has roughly 13.8 million shares pledged against debt that Tesla has. Right. And the, we don't know the strike price of when he has to effectively well, sell those shares, but right. when he does, uh, we will see those uh, the reform fours, uh, and that'll be yet another uh, negative data point. Real quick, though, I'd love to get your sense of whether today news lowers that target further or it's just more noise confirming your thesis we can't we can't lower our target uh, on Bloomberg uh, radio uh, but what I will say is um, you know you look at the competition that's coming, right? The Mercedes car that was unveiled. I think it's the EQR that's unveiled. We're going to the Audi unveil uh, later this month in September. And people keep asking the question, have you driven the Model 3? And no, we haven't. We've driven the Model S. Um, uh, but when you look at the guys who have driven the Model 3, and then they go and drive the Jaguar I-Pace or the Audi e-tron, um, it, they're saying that the, the newer cars um, are much better. Um, and, and we're going we're gonna to go drive a Model 3 this weekend. Uh, there's a, you, you can drive a Jaguar I-Pace. There's one in a Manhattan uh, Jaguar where you can drive. We're going to do that. So we're going we're gonna to experience it ourselves. But I think that this company has major problems, uh, major issues, uh, and it's all out there in the open. And I think that you know, some of the things the CEO is doing um, um, you know, are certainly denting further his credibility. And as we stated, I think that's more important. We think that's more important to the stock than even the fundamentals. We don't think that's right. We think people should look at the fundamentals. But we think people are investing in this for Elon. And Elon, um, you know, is doing some questionable things, and I think that's going to weigh on the stock further. Just give you about uh, 20 seconds here, Gordon. If you're a fund manager and you are long Tesla stock, do you think you're exposing yourself to potential lawsuits by your investors? Absolutely. You have a CEO who said funding secured, but more importantly said all that we need now is a shareholder vote. That clearly was not true. You have a CEO who's smoking marijuana on TV, um, where the company policy is if the employees smoke marijuana, you're supposed to report them. Um, you have guys like me and others out there highlighting clearly things in the public eye that, you know, I think people are just ignoring and just saying, hey, we believe in Elon. Uh, if this stock collapses, I do think that there is some risk to guys who are ignoring all these red flags. I think that's a great question, and I agree with that, Tim. Many thanks. Gordon Johnson is analyst and managing director at the Vertical Group. He's speaking about Tesla. Well, taking a look at the U.S. dollar right now, and while the emerging market currencies have gained a little bit of strength, that's not the case with the euro at 115.77, the pound sterling at 129.60, the Japanese yen 111.14, and strength continues despite news from Canada that the Canadian Central Bank had considered raising interest rates. Canadian dollar at 131.40. Here to tell us more is Dr. Win Thin, Global Head of Emerging Markets FX for Brown Brothers Harriman. Win Thin. The relationship between the U.S. dollar and emerging market currencies, what are the links and how do they work? Uh, first of all, thanks again for having me. It's always a pleasure. Um, the outsized performance of the U.S. dollar this year has really been driven uh, by two major factors. The, the, to me, the main one right now is still uh, remains interest rate differentials. That is, the Fed is hiking rates. Everyone else is not, basically. 
Uh, of course, you have some outliers, like, as you mentioned, Canada tightening. But for the most part, the uh, developed world is, is, is pretty much in a steady state of, of near zero rates. Uh, today's uh, data from the uh, Commerce Department was, uh, I'm sorry, from the BLS was, was certainly an eye-opener. Um, the average hourly earnings is what people are keying on, 2.9% year-over-year, cycle high, the highest since June 2009. So that, to me, tells, I think, tells the market the Fed is going to remain comfortable hiking rates um, into next year. Um, September's a done deal. December, or December is going to probably close, getting close to be priced as a done deal, and that's continuing to help uh, fuel this dollar rally. When you know, it's really interesting. We were speaking with Damian Sasso of Bloomberg Intelligence earlier, and he said there is a misconception right now in the emerging markets universe that the sell-off stems from Fed tightening, where it really stems much more from a tightening in financial conditions in China. Would you agree? Uh, no, I do. I, I would disagree. I, you know, as big as the, the Chinese economy is, the, the, the world's central bank is still the Fed. Um, the dollar rates really are, are, ascent, ascent, are used as the benchmark for, for all sorts of investments. That's not to say China doesn't have an impact, but I think the major impact is still coming from the U.S. Um, I think the other, I mentioned there's several factors hurting EM. The, to me, the other thing that's hurting emerging markets is the uh, continued heightened trade tensions. It looks like the U.S. is teeing up uh, some more uh, tariffs on Chinese goods, I think on $200 billion as threatened. China's retaliating. Um, you know, despite some good news at the margin on NAFTA, which also still seems up in the air with Canada, uh, I think trade, the trade tension story is not going away anytime soon. So really, uh, we're seeing a little bit of a bounce to EM, but I, I remain negative uh, into next year. Can you explain what countries that we have not been talking about are next on your list for perhaps raising interest rates in order to shore up the value of their currency? Oh, sure. Uh, let's see. Well, we in the emerging markets world, we already have had several. Um, Argentina uh, is obviously the biggest example. Uh, Turkey is hiking, continue to hike. Brazil, to me, Brazil, South Africa, Russia, those are the three uh, so in, the, in the, the next three, in the fragile five that we're seeing, Russia, South Africa, Brazil, Turkey, Argentina. I would say uh, Russia's meeting next week. They're talking about a possible hike. Um, Brazilian real, uh, the, the central bank, um, uh, it's been dovish, but I think to me, you know, the, with the, the real remains on the pressure, it's going to have to consider a, a rate hike. The analysts are saying no rate hikes through year end, but the CDI market, that's the fixed income market in Brazil, is pricing in a rate hike as soon as this month. So the market's split on that, but I think Brazil will have to hike. South Africa, to me, is a puzzle. Um, they've, they've rarely hiked rates to defend their, the RAND in past episodes. And we had a shocker uh, contraction in GDP Q2 uh, earlier this week, making it even more reluctant to hike rates. So I, I, you know, I think South Africa you know, could be the outliers as the one that's standing dovish, even though the, the RAND is under pressure. Do you think, just talking about this from a liquidity standpoint, a technical standpoint, do you think that we've seen the bulk of forced selling or has the weakness that we've seen so far uh, just been the beginning and not really including that much uh, in the way of outflows? Uh, well, I'll take, I'll take uh, the typical economist answer and say I, I think we're right in the middle. Uh, I think we've, you know, we've Very diplomatic. <laughs> I think we've gone through a lot of selling. I think, you know, I, I wouldn't say we're early on. But I don't think it's worried by any means over. So I, I think we're still sort of navigating. You know, I hear talk about how all the valuations look great. But, you know, face it, you know, EM assets were, were really inflated by the zero rate policy uh, that we had after the financial crisis. And we're, we're still repricing um, those assets. As I mentioned, the, the ECB hasn't hiked yet. You know, they're going to start normalizing probably next year. 
Um, so there's still a lot of sort of repricing and, and liquidity that's going to be taken away uh, in the coming quarters. So I would say let's, let's remain cautious on EM. Thank you so much for being with us, Dr. Wynn Thin. Dr. Winthin, Global Head of Emerging Markets FX for Brown Brothers Harriman. Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh has been very much in the news as he speaks with senators in hearings on Capitol Hill this week, talking about his past views, previous letters he's written, and how he would view a president in terms of potential criminal charges. Joining us now, Kimberly Robinson, Supreme Court reporter for Bloomberg Law. Kimberly, let's just start off with this idea that it seems very unlikely at this point that Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh will be derailed in his ascension to the court. Is that true? Well, that is true, and that's because Democrats just don't have the votes really to block his confirmation. Their best hope seems to be two pro-choice Republicans, but so far they seem to be leaning towards supporting him. And it's likely that they'd have to pick up a few more Republicans because uh, several Democrats are likely to vote for him, given that they're facing really tough re-election battles uh, in the midterm elections in states that went for Donald Trump in the last presidential election. Well, Kimberly, so why are they doing this? Because it's not as if, I mean, based on what you just described, they're not convincing anybody that was unconvinced. And are they basically preaching to their own choir? And why do that? Because it certainly seems to have ignited a lot of criticism from those areas of the political spectrum that may not have been paying attention to this in the first place. Well, we are seeing really unprecedented levels of protest, not only from senators themselves, but also from audience members. Uh, I suspect that Democrats are doing this not in order to trip up this confirmation battle, although I'm sure they'd like to do that, but to fire up their base for midterm elections. You know, traditionally, Republicans have cared more about the Supreme Court, and this is a way to highlight for Democratic voters that you have to vote in these midterm elections if you want to have a say in who's going to be the next Supreme Court justice. So let's talk about who Brett Kavanaugh is. What are the views that people most object to here? Well, I think people uh, we've seen are really pressing on his views on abortion, on gay rights, and on affirmative action. And these are all issues where Justice Kennedy, whom Kavanaugh would be replacing, actually crossed over and voted with the liberals. And so people are watching these because they suspect that when Kavanaugh is confirmed to the Supreme Court that these areas will switch shifts quite a bit. Is there any information that you believe that exists about Brett Kavanaugh, either his opinions or his time in the Bush White House, that are earth-shaking and that we have not been privy to in any way? Well, there's probably not a lot of information that we don't know. Uh, we've seen over the last couple of days a few documents um, come out uh, that have been sort of described as bombshells, uh, but they describe views of Brett Kavanaugh that many people suspect that he has, although these these documents seem to prove it. Um, so we're not learning anything new about Brett Kavanaugh. There are really no new concerns. It's just raising these concerns so voters are aware of them. 
All right. So, Kimberly, let's take a step back and just talk about conservative ideology versus liberal ideology within Supreme Court law. For example, Antonin Scalia, who is deceased, but who is a longtime, very traditional Supreme Court or conservative Supreme Court justice, was very good friends with Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who was a very liberal Supreme Court justice. They disagreed in a lot of things. What are some of the fundamental differences in their ideology and does Brett Kavanaugh fit in just the conservative classification or does he depart from that? Well, I think one of the major differences that impacts Americans most significantly is how liberal versus conservative justices view constitutional interpretation and uh, the constitutional rights that Americans have. And we see uh, conservatives really home close to the text of the Constitution, seeming to grant fewer constitutional rights uh, to individuals, and on the opposite side, liberals uh, having a more expansive view of the rights that individuals have. Uh, Brett Kavanaugh does fit that bill. He's called himself an originalist, and that is the kind of person who, you know, looks at uh, the past and what the or public meaning was of the rights that we have when the Constitution was passed, not what we might want them to be today. Kimberly, the American Bar Association committee that takes a look at nominees for the Supreme Court says that Judge Kavanaugh has the highest rating and that he's well qualified. Is that? Well, that's... Go ahead. I that's beg your right. pardon. The American Bar Association, uh, they they do this for every judicial nominee. Uh, they gave him their highest qualification of well-qualified. But when testifying today, ABA representatives uh, wanted to emphasize that they don't look at his political ideology. It's really just a peer review of individuals who have worked with the judge and who have argued before the judge. Right, so that he is qualified. That's right. They said he was qualified, um, but it's important to note that you know every Supreme Court justice in modern history to come before the justices um, and who have gotten on the court have been marked qualified by the ABA. So it, it isn't a signal of uh, how they will vote once on the Supreme Court. Right. Okay. Very good. Thanks for uh, clearing that up and uh, being uh, on watch for us. Uh, as always, Kimberly Robinson, our Supreme Court reporter for Bloomberg Law. And you can, of course, uh, follow uh, Kimberly uh, on Twitter at Kimberly Robinson. Uh, that's uh, without the O at the end. And also you can follow Bloomberg Law on Twitter at Bloomberg Law. Wages in the United States increased 2.9%. The economy adds over 200,000 new jobs. Here to tell us more about the economy is Chris Lowe, chief economist at FTN Financial. Chris, always a pleasure to have you with us. Uh, maybe you could just do something for me. Let's just pretend for a moment that you were born after the financial crisis of 2008 and you were to take a look at the statistics that describe the current state of the U.S. economy. If you were to do that and then take a look at the level of interest rates for U.S. Treasuries, would you say that it makes sense or would you say that there's something that doesn't, that doesn't jibe? Well, it, it, certainly, it, if you think about it in terms of... Uh, 
four percent job, four uh, percent employment growth, four percent unemployment rate, uh, historical norms. Uh, yeah, interest rates at these levels are, are just remarkably low. But uh, if if you, as you said, were were born after '08, and and that's the world you know, then uh, then they make perfect sense. And uh, in fact, John Williams just yesterday talking about uh, no sign of, uh, of of financial excesses. Uh, credit growth actually is is tame by historical standards. It's extremely low, uh, and in that sense, I, I think interest rates are perfectly reasonable at these levels. The the difference is that Americans are just much more reluctant to borrow than they have been in the past. So given that backdrop, John Williams also said some other things, particularly about the yield curve, saying that they're going to continue to hike rates uh, as they see fit, even if that means inverting the yield curve, because it doesn't seem to bother him. So do you expect more rate hikes to go, especially after this pretty good jobs report? I I think so. Uh, I I think September and December were pretty much in the cards anyway. The, the issue was whether they were going to pause in early 2019. Uh, with faster wage growth, the Hawks are going to be emboldened. Uh, even Williams, who had some doubts yesterday uh, about the wage growth mystery, this report should answer some of those doubts uh, and and maybe settle the mystery for him. Uh, it, it wasn't just that wages rose in August; they were revised up in June and July as well. Job uh, wage growth over the summer was terrific. Uh, average weekly earnings, which reflect both the the hourly uh, rate of wages, but also the work week, uh, were up at a, a uh, 3.26% pace over the summer, which is the fastest in the cycle. Uh, you know, wages are heating up, but a little perspective is probably a good idea, too, given the age of the expansion. Uh, wage growth at this point back in, in the 2000s expansion was 4%. Uh, in the late 90s, it was running at 35 to 4%. And actually, uh, it was in that range for about five years with no significant inflation. So, yeah, wages are picking up, but uh, they're still tamed by historical standards. Nevertheless, we better see some productivity gains in the next six months or uh, the, the Fed is going to have to continue to tighten. Chris Lowe, do you believe that the Federal Reserve will take into account any of the havoc that has been wrecked upon the emerging markets as a result of the strength of the U.S. dollar? Absolutely, I do, but not until it spills over into the U.S. I, I think they should give a bigger weight, frankly, to what's happening in the emerging markets because it, it's pretty clearly a result, at least partially, of their dependence on U.S. dollar financing, on uh, you know the, the difficulty of raising cash in dollars now that the Fed is draining liquidity. Uh, and really, if you think about inflation, it's a global phenomenon. Uh, if, as the Fed tightens, their goal is to free up some capacity. 
Uh, I, I suspect it'll be pretty clear by the end of the year they have freed up capacity. It just isn't necessarily in the U.S. Uh, there'll, there'll be plenty of spare capacity around the world, and that should keep inflation in check. Do you think that right now people, including Fed officials, are too sanguine about trade tensions? Because right now it seems like we could get announced any day an additional 25 percent tariff on $200 billion of additional goods from China heading into the U.S. President Trump has said that he wants to do this. I'm struggling to understand what the implication is for the market and whether everyone's just discounting this to their fault. I I think there's a couple of things there. Uh, First, the the Fed is alert to this. They, They listed trade tensions and tariffs, particularly as one of the top four risks to the U.S. economy. So they're they're not at all asleep at the switch. I, I think what makes this so difficult is that predicting the outcome is extraordinarily tough. Uh, you know, just days before we reached a trade agreement with Mexico, for example, uh, the, the papers were, were reporting that uh, an, an agreement was unlikely. Uh, things can change quickly. As for the trade fight with China, I, I do think that's only going to get uglier, and uh, I, I suspect it's a real threat. To put some additional perspective on that, uh, looking at the employment report this morning, the diffusion index for manufacturing has declined sharply in the last three months. Uh, There were broad-based job losses in manufacturing uh, industries in August. And it's, it's not clear, but it likely has to do with a slowdown in car sales. So manufacturing is looking a little more vulnerable now than it was just a few months ago. And obviously, if we have big increases in tariffs here and in China, uh, that's going to further weigh on, on their prospects. Chris Lowe, thank you so much for being with us on this Jobs Friday. Chris Lowe, Chief Economist at FTN Financial in New York. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.